I've uh, been down with a virus the last couple of weeks and uh, even had to, had to cancel my men's study last Monday morning and, and not, don't, don't have to do that tomorrow. I'm, I'm kind of on the mend. A couple days ago, I turned a corner and it feels so good. It feels so good to be kind of up a little bit again. You don't have to take those meds, you know, those NyQuil type of things to be able to sleep through the night without coughing. You know, I don't have to take that stuff anymore. So look out, beware. Bob is off his meds, okay? <laughs> the, um, it's just something about a, a, a virus that invades us, that comes in, in and drags us down, that, that once we, we get victory over it and we begin to feel some recovery and it feels so good again, it feels so good to be on the upswing, right? And when you're past a certain age, you'll take that upswing feeling any way you can get it. All right, so for a few days, feeling great. Good to be with you this morning. That, that, that new sense of empowering and new strength that I didn't have a few days ago, there's something about that in what I wanted to share with you from the Word this morning as well. We have been talking about how God himself came near. That in the incarnation, the Son took on flesh and dwelt among us, moved into our neighborhoods. God came near, that he comes near, first of all, to show us God. The one who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. And we are introduced through Jesus most completely and fully. Most rightly, we know God as Father, Son, and Spirit. And we, through him, are invited into that relationship that the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have always had with each other. And we, in Jesus, are invited into that by his spirit. Not only that, but Jesus coming in humanity shows us rightly who, who, who humanity is to be. That he shows us real humanity, not humanity that's held back by sin, drugged down by things like viruses and our weakness. Now, he experienced all of that human weakness, but he shows us Humanity came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He became in every respect like us, except without sin. And he demonstrates, he proves, he condemns sin in the flesh that sin is not essential to humanity. We will give ourselves a pass. We'll say, what do you expect from me? I'm only human. No, I am human, made in the image of God. And sin, like an invasive species, like a virus invading, like a cancer working its way through the body, does not have to have its victory in the corners of our lives where it has grabbed hold of us. And that's a little more what I want to talk about today. But the next, next step, putting those two realities together, invited into relationship with the triune God, and what it is to be rightly human in Jesus' life. Jesus came to show us the Father. Jesus came to show us humanity. And Jesus came to live. Jesus came to live a human life. Now, we know as evangelicals, we know it is our creed, it is our confession that Jesus came to die for us. We embrace that. He came to die in our place for our guilt, for our shame, that we could have that renewed, restored relationship with God. You know, the gospel in Jesus Christ is not merely about eternal destiny. 
We have a different eternal destiny or dwelling place. We go to the good place, not the bad place, not because that's just what Jesus did for us. Jesus paid the bill so that we can go there instead of there. That's not it. Jesus has removed sin out of the way so we are in right relationship with God again through him. And because we are in right relationship, where else would God have us but with him? The destination, the dwelling place is incidental. Of course, that's where we will be because of who he has made us with him. Okay? And that us with him in relationship leads into what impact does that have in life? We poked around at that a little bit last week as we looked at Luke chapter 2 and we saw Jesus in those three temptations against the enemy and he lives a, a, a uh, more severe version of the temptation in the garden. Instead of a garden, it's a wilderness and instead of having plenty of food around, Jesus is fasting for 40 days and yet he resists the enemy. He yields to the Father's will. Jesus comes to live. But you know, Adam and Eve didn't come merely to be tested in the garden, did they? Adam and Eve were created not to be tested or tempted. Adam and Eve were created to live as image bearers, to bear the image and likeness of God and act as God's signet rings, God's image bearers to the rest of creation, to represent God to his creation, and yet serving themselves, falling into that temptation. They serve them their own will instead of his will and we ever since. But Jesus comes. He resists those temptations, Luke chapter 4, to serve himself. Instead, he identifies why he has come. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus quotes out of the book of Isaiah. He, he uh, picks, takes the scroll there in the synagogue of Nazareth. And the scroll they hand him is the book of Isaiah. He opens it to the place where Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 61 says these words. And Isaiah is saying them about himself. Isaiah dares to declare this for himself as the Lord's messenger. And yet, as Isaiah goes on further in chapter 60, 61, you realize Isaiah is speaking of somebody greater than himself. And those words are then fulfilled in Jesus, where Jesus takes the scroll, to opens it to the place where it is written, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to see God, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those words of Isaiah 61 are also using language out of Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, the language is, it, it evokes the image of the year of jubilee a year of release, a year of restoration, a year of freedom and celebration. In the year of Jubilee, it was the 50th year. After seven Sabbaths, after seven sevens of years, after the 49th year came the 50th, and the 50th year was an extra Sabbath. It was a special celebration. This was the time when all debts that had been in, 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 incurred were released. When if somebody even had sold themselves into servitude because they could not pay their bills, they couldn't even provide for their own family, and they sell themselves into servitude, this is the time when all of those under such bondage are set free. 
This is the time that even if they'd sold off the family's inheritance, that which was rightly, rightly theirs, given to their family line by God, but they'd sold it off. Somebody else had bought it up in a time of their need. This was a time when that which was theirs was restored back to them. What was lost was restored. That was the year of Jubilee, and that's the language that Isaiah 61, that Jesus is echoing here. That jubilee language and manifests the image of God as Savior, as Deliverer, as Merciful, as Joyous, forgiving, releasing, embracing, dancing, celebrating, restoring. The year of jubilee, I think, is God's favorite year. And this has come. The language is figurative, jubilee, and yet it's literal. It's predicting a time, a, a advent, a glorious kingdom to come, living with God again in the garden, fully restored. Everything lost in Adam has been regained. That's what it's anticipating. Restored in favor and in fruitfulness. No more oppression, no more debt. Can I get an amen? No more imprisoned captives. Jesus is anointed. That is to say, Jesus as a man has the Spirit upon him. God's Spirit is especially upon him for this purpose. God's Spirit is upon Jesus to do God's business on behalf of God's people in God's creation. The Spirit is upon him to manifest in humanity as human God's likeness again in God's creation. Jesus is going to live out God's likeness in this broken down garden. Reminding us again, showing us what God is like, showing us, showing us what human, hum, humanity's role is, and showing how, by how he lives, how can we then live. All creation is seeing God's image again in Jesus. Likewise, all creation can see God's image again, somewhat, in his body in the church, in the lives of you and I. What is Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, anointed by the Spirit, come to do? Look further on in, in, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 33, also in verse 39. In verse 33, there's the casting out of a demon who is oppressing. There is the releasing from spiritual bondage. And it's not merely for those oppressed directly by demons, because Ephesians 2 tells us gospel is bigger than that. The, the Ephesians 2 tells us that, that all of us are dead in trespasses and sins, that all of us are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the children of disobedience, that that is the lot of humanity from Adam onward. And yet Jesus comes to reverse that, to release those who are captive. Jesus comes to restore those who are weak and infirmed in the weakness of our flesh, those who have fevers and illnesses and sinus viruses, any affliction, and they are healed, they are restored. He does that to give us a first glimpse of what it is that Jesus' life brings. Sure, Jesus came, comes to die. He comes to declare the mercy and favor and kindness of God, but Jesus also comes to live. And in that life, what kinds of people does he bring God's mercy and favor, God's forgiveness and restoration to? 
Well, if you follow ahead into Luke chapter 5, we're not going to read through it, but if you scan through Luke chapter 5, you'd, you get introduced to Jesus with one person after another, and this is who they are. Jesus brings that mercy and favor, forgiveness and restoration, first to Peter, who self-discloses, Lord, I am a sinful man. He comes to a leper, one who is unclean, an outcast. He comes to the disabled those, and left out. He comes to the despised, Matthew, tax collector. Greatly despised in their society. Do you know anybody who works for the IRS? Maybe not, because often they don't tell you that. Because they know your, our attitude inherently, something about the, the tax agency that just goes against us and causes us to withdraw. And, and Matthew was, was in a setting far worse than that because his role as a tax collector, he, he bid on the job as to how much he could get out of this area for Rome. That's what Rome expected. And anything more he could squeeze out of anybody on any excuse or lie, that belonged to him. And so they were known to squeeze and manipulate people for whatever they could get out of them. That was the despised Matthew who Jesus makes his own and calls him into the ministry. Why does he do that? Why does he do that for these kind of people? Why does he give grace and mercy to, to those that others would walk right by? Because this is what God is like. And Jesus, the man of whom the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, Jesus does who God is. Okay? Jesus acts not on his own, not on a whim, not according to a list. Jesus simply does that which the Father is. He doesn't do things on his own. He doesn't do things according to his own will. And I'm going to surprise you here. There are times when Jesus has a different human will from the Father. And yet... He yields his will to the Father's will, and he does those things which the Father is. That's how he shows us who God is. Let me demonstrate that. John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus does what God is. This is really what we should do. We were made, created in the image of God to be God's image bearers, right? But you say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. We talked about that last week. Wait, <laughs> that's Jesus. And I don't know if you've noticed. Maybe you haven't been looking really close, but Bob is not Jesus, okay? You've noticed that. Thank you, thank you. Now I'm encouraged, okay. But, but I, I say, come on, that, that. You put that on, it sounds good, but I'm not him. I can't be what Jesus could be. I mean, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, right? It says that, that we just read. But remember, Jesus came. Jesus came in our humanity, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh separating sin as an intruder from humanity and not yielding to the sin, identifying, condemning sin in us as the culprit. He moves sin out of the way. He condemns it. It's judged. He dies in our place for our sin. He comes to condemn sin and for sin so that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us. It can be 
How? Romans 8, 4, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This walking or living according to the Spirit is for anybody who has the Spirit of God upon them. Anybody who is indwelt by the Spirit because they belong to Jesus. When Jesus comes in human flesh, he resists the devil in Luke chapter 4 as we saw last week. He doesn't do it by pushing the God button. He does it as a human relying on the Spirit of God to yield himself to the will of God. He does it successfully and fully because he is yielding himself to the will of God. One of my favorite quotes is by an evangelist named D.L. Moody, whom the Moody Bible Institute was named for. We founded the Moody Bible Institute. That's why it was named after him. But Moody said, and he was, he, was, he was challenged early in his ministry. He heard somebody say, the world is yet to see what God would do through the man or woman wholly yielded to him. And Moody said, by God's grace, I want to be that man. And yet he said, at the end of his life, he said, the world is yet to see amazing things that God would do through the man or woman wholly yielded to him. And yet, as much as I like Moody, I must disagree with him because the world, all the world has seen what God would do through the man, the one man who was indeed wholly yielded to him and his name is Jesus. And in that one man yielded to him, God changed everything. That's what God would do. And to the extent then that we participate in that yielding to his spirit in our lives, God will do that redeeming and restoring work toward others also through us. Also through us. Jesus then is an example for us. Think of it kind of like that, but not like that. What do I mean? Jesus is not an example for us in what would Jesus do. You remember the bracelets? People wore the bracelets, WWJD. What would Jesus do? You're supposed to think in this situation, well, what do I want to do? <laughs> That's easy. Oh, what would Jesus do, though? Well, I don't know. Jesus wouldn't, buy, wouldn't drive a car. Jesus wouldn't use a credit card. Jesus, Jesus wouldn't do a lot of things that I do. What would Jesus do? That, that, that's, but what that ends up with is some kind of self-empowered, moralistic living that I make a list of the kinds of things that Jesus would do and those are the things that I need to try to do. I try to be a good Christian. I, 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 I make a list of, I define my Christian life by I do these things and I don't do those things. And in, in comparing that, and my experience of that to Jesus in my mind, I, I then consider myself, well, I'm a pretty good Christian, or I'm not a very good Christian. Based upon what I do out of my best efforts and compared to what I would say that Jesus did and how Jesus lived. Jesus is not our example because as I consider accurately how I do, I do terribly. I fail stupendously. That's what I succeeded. I succeeded at failing. I cannot in me be as Jesus is. I stand there with Paul stammering in the end of Romans 7. The things that I would do, I don't. The things that I don't want to do, 
Those are the things I find myself doing. Why am I there again? Why am I in this again? Why is this back in my life? I don't want that. And yet, here it is. Oh, wretched man that I am. In this broken, wretched humanity, who will deliver me, Paul says, from the body of this death? The answer is thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The answer is, in fact, that Jesus is our example, not in what would Jesus do, but how did Jesus do? What do I mean by that? How did Jesus do? It's not me trying harder to do the things Jesus did. It's ye, me yielding more to live how by the same means that Jesus in his humanity lived. That's Romans chapter 8. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, look at verses 1 to 4 again. This would be a, a, a passage just kind of working through, reading through again on your own after I give you kind of a, um, a bird's eye view of it. In verses 1 to 4, he says, Thanks be to God. God delivers, God will deliver me from the body of this flesh. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Explain this way. There's therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, the ruling factor, the life-giving, life-expressing spirit, the spirit who gives life, the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law or the ruling factor, the ruling principle of sin and death. By the spirit, I'm free from sin and death ruling in my life. How does that work? God has done what the law, being weak in our flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, doing and for sin as a substitute in my place, God condemned sin in this human flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law could be, may be, fulfilled in us who walk not according to our own flesh, our own ability, our humanity merely, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, natural humanity, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. By the Spirit's leading, living according to the Spirit's leading of us in our humanity, we have a new set of want-tos, and along with that, by the Spirit's presence, we have a new kind of how-to. Living by the Spirit, yielding to His will, instead of my will, which is exactly how Jesus lived in his humanity as a man yielding his will, his desires to the Father's will and doing that by the strengthening, the empowering of the spirit of the living God over his humanity. A power that humanity did not have. Why? Because humanity in rebellion from God was separated from God and had no relationship with God by his spirit. So we were left on the outside. Jesus comes without any separation from the Father. So in his human humanity, he's still in full fellowship with the God his Father so that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him fully, allowing him then to be enabled to live fully yielded to God. 
And when Jesus condemns sin in our flesh by living in our place and for dying in our place, defeating sin every day, yielding to the Spirit instead, and then dying for our sins, not his own because he has none, he moves sin out of the way. Our sins and iniquities are remembered no more, Hebrews says, so that now there's nothing between us and God, that simply in Jesus, on the basis of what he did, how he he lived and died for me, in Jesus, I now have restored relationship with the Father. It's not merely a technical requirement has been fulfilled. God needed somebody to die, so somebody died. No, he has moved what was in the way between me and God out of the way. He has moved what was in between preventing fellowship and relationship of you with God out of the way so that relationship is restored so now the Spirit can come. That's why Jesus explained to his disciple that he's going away. What does that mean? He's going to die. And they're sorrowful. And he says, don't be sorry. Don't be sorrowful about this. Don't be grieving about this. This is good news. If I did not go away in death, then the Spirit would not come. You would still be separated from God, out of relationship with him. But because I go away in death, I will send you the Spirit who will be in you. It's a whole new relationship that he has opened the way for us by dying for us on the cross. All right. The issue is not what would Jesus do, what should I try to do. The issue was never what would Jesus do. You know, we knew what Jesus would do. We always had the law. It told us what was required. The problem was the law was weak in our flesh. We could not do what it said that Jesus would do. So now, removing the guilt and restored relationship with the Father, the Father and the Son send the Spirit to live their life in us by his empowering Spirit. So Paul says in Galatians 2, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And his life now lived out in my body, what Paul calls in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit in me produces his fruit in our lives. So Jesus declares in his ministry, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And so we can rightly say, in faith in Christ, the Spirit of the Lord is upon us. Hold on there a minute. You're going to think, oh, you seem like you're dabbling a little bit towards heresy here, Bob. You're making yourself a little too much like Jesus. In his humanity, yes. You see, the danger we have is we separate ourselves. We make Jesus too unlike us. That he's for us, but not really near us. God came near. So near that he inhabited our humanity for us with us, to invite us. He came in relationship to us so that we would have relationship again with God. So this guilt moved out of the way, the Spirit of the Lord could be upon us also, even more fully indwelling us than is upon Isaiah in Isaiah 61. Even greater. So where we wound up then is in in Romans chapter 8, Coming a few verses down, you find that, that, in fact, if somebody does not have the Spirit of Christ in them, they don't belong to Christ. That it's normal for every Christian to have the Holy Spirit, and he then gives life. Look at verse 11. Put 11 up here so everyone would see it. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he does in every Christian, everyone who believes in Jesus as Savior, who believes in Jesus as the Son of God from heaven for us and our salvation, then the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, so he who raised life from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now you might be thinking, well, just as he raised Jesus one day, he'll, he'll bodily resurrect, raise us too. That's true. I'm looking forward to that day. Yet the context here is not that day, but this day. The context there is him dwelling in us, giving new life to these weak Mortal bodies. The Spirit, think of it. The same way Jesus is empowered for his ministry to display the likeness of God before all of creation, and creation sings in response, rejoices in response, demons cower in response. The Spirit of the Lord is upon us. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you and in you. I don't know. About you, but for me, that's a wow moment. Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. He compares that to the alternative. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, he says, The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The enemy, Satan, is a thief and a liar, taking away what God made us for. Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Now, the world defines abundant life with an abundance of stuff. And Jesus said, your life is not measured in the abundance of things possessed. No, in his abundant life, like St. Nicholas, he gave himself away. And that's where others will see the life of Jesus in us. Because Jesus does what God is. And as his children in a family resemblance, bearing the fruit of the Spirit of God within us, we would do things which God is. This really hit me in a new way when I was writing my book in the midst of my doctoral um, work, uh, Preaching Like the Prophets. Available on Amazon? Still looking for a Christmas gift? No, seriously, it's probably not. It's, it's, it's not intended for most people. It wouldn't probably be a good Christmas gift for the person on your list. And the last thing I want is to see my book showing up at the White Elephant Gift Exchanges next year. <laughs> Unopened, spine not cracked. Let's just not do that. But as I, as I started that work, the first three parts of it, before I got into comparing how it is that the prophets said what they said, that first of all, there were some essential comparisons between Old Testament prophets and New Testament pastors. And we, we shared an essential ministry that prophets and pastors are both messengers of God to a covenant people. A covenant people under Moses, a covenant people under the New Covenant. That, that both pastors and prophets have a similar message. It has some continuities to it. That prophets and pastors both take the truth of God's past redemption, what God has done for us, and his future promise, what he will do for us, and we apply that from the word of God to the people of God in present-day circumstances. 
Prophets and pastors both did the same thing. And that led me to the third one, which was a little startling. And that was the same means for that message and ministry. And that same means was the prophets spoke by the power of the Spirit. Over and over again, the Spirit of the Lord says... What the prophets say, they say by the Spirit. Now, not all of them inspired. There's much prophetic ministry that does not make itself into the inspired prophetic books. Just like there was much first century preaching that didn't make its way into inspired New Testament books. Okay? So, but all of the prophets' ministry, the prophets of God, their ministry was by the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And... As Spurgeon well says of the preaching ministry, unless a man be filled with the Spirit, he has no business in the pulpit. Now to experience that fully, I do not need more of God's Spirit upon me. Some of you will pray for me. God, pour out more of your Spirit upon me. The Spirit of the living God already indwells me as you. The problem is, I don't need more of the Spirit. Rather, the Spirit needs more of me. You pray for me that way. God, I pray that, Lord, he would give you more of himself. God, help our pastor to yield himself more, his will for your will. That's the way to best pray for me. That's the best way to pray for one another that we would know his will and the mind of Christ and we would take a next step in it by the enabling power of his spirit because the spirit of the Lord is upon us. Because you see, this is not merely for preachers and prophets. This is for all of us. Ephesians chapter five and verse eight lays this out, urging, Paul urges the church, listen, don't be caught up in the parting of the culture. Do not get drunk with wine, for therein is debauchery, but instead, in contrast, be filled with the Spirit. And just the same way that being drunk with wine, it will do two things for you. It will reduce your abilities. You will not be able to do the same things in the same ways that you could have if you were not drunk. It will reduce your inhibitions so that you will do some things that you would not choose to do otherwise if you were not drunk, right? So it reduces our abilities in things we ought to be able to do, and it leads us more into doing things we ought not to do. It's a great contrast to the filling or the being under the influence. Instead of being inhibited by one, we are going to be enabled by the other. Enabled, strengthened, empowered, increased by the filling of the Spirit. And then he describes what's that look, what that looks like in ministry toward one another. And the list ends in submitting yourselves to one another in the Lord. Submission seems to be a part of this filling of the Spirit. How do I know what is God's Spirit's influence as compared to what is my desire? Because that's something, that's someplace where, this, where our Lord Jesus lived in his human flesh as well. I told you there was a, there was a reality of that. Think back to the, gar, the, the Garden of Gethsemane. Think back to his prayer before his Father, where you have the Son and you have the Father, and the Son prays to the Father, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He, he expresses the heartfelt, the root need of humanity of self-preservation, I don't want to die. 
And knowing as he does the fullness of that relationship with God, I don't want to be separated from my relationship with you by the Spirit. He would seek in his own human will to preserve himself. If there's any way possible, Lord, let this cup pass from me. That's Jesus' real, genuine, true, and right human will in that moment. And yet he yields that will to the Father. He says, nevertheless, in spite of that, in full recognition of that, not my will, but your will be done. I yield my will to you. That's what it looks like. Your will, your choices, your desires might be very legit. It might be for good for you and for others that you care about. And yet God may be pressing you, poking you, provoking you by his spirit to give away. To instead look to the need of somebody else. To come near to them. To give time to them that you could use for yourself. I hate it. When the Spirit has something else for me to do, then watch the Seahawks on Sunday afternoons. And sometimes it happens. And I need to be there. And there are times, certainly, some certain kinds of things that you jolly well expect your pastor. When it's a 10 o'clock game, guess what? I'm not there. I'm here. Why? Because it was obvious. We yield our will to what is clearly the Father's will for us instead. Now you're feeling guilty when you stayed home for a 10 o'clock game. That was not my intention. Clearly, I'm supposed to be here. But that's what it looks like. That step by step, that choice by choice, and what I want and what I want for you is to take a next step into that. Because what I'm describing is not completely out of the experience of anyone here who is born again, who Jesus is their Savior. You have been walking by the Spirit, and you've known the joy of the Spirit's leading in your life and provoking you to something. And, oh, that was sweet. It cost you. It hurt. You felt some rejection, and yet there was something there that brought you closer to the Father, and that was sweet. And I want more of that for us. I want more of God using us. I want more of the people around us, those whom you are strategically sprinkled among in this community, at school, at work, and in neighborhoods, that they would see, especially at this time of year when people are thinking about it, they'd see something more of our God, his likeness in us because we do the things that God is. His loving compassion, his care for others, his mercy, his forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us, that they would see something of that that would point them a little more toward our same Savior. Maybe you're here this morning and this whole idea of being restored into a relationship with God that ends up living out in new ways in life. Ways that you'd like to see, and yet you know you can't do on your own. Maybe this morning is just the provoking for you. I, I'd like that. I'd like to taste and see that the Lord is good. I would like to this morning... And you can do this right where you are. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. Right where you are, this can be the moment, morning where you would say, I believe in Jesus, not for the sins of the world. I believe in Jesus for me, who came near, that he would bring me near to God again. I want Jesus as my Savior. Maybe you're here this morning. You did that a while ago. You say, what I want this morning 
is in whatever spiritual drought or whatever season of busyness I'm in, I want to yield one more little corner of my life. One more choice. Something he's putting on my heart and yet I'm resisting it. I want to lift that up in willing hands to him. I want to pray for you. I want us to pray for one another in those two things this morning. Would you join me? Father, first of all, Lord, for someone here among us, maybe you've been here a long time coming to church, doing the what would Jesus do thing, realizing that's been in my own effort to be good enough for God instead of trusting the Son of God who was good for me. Lord, that you would be most pleased to receive me back to yourself on the basis of what Jesus did, not what I do. Lord, I believe you for that this morning. God, I believe you for Jesus as my Savior. Father, we pray this morning for many of us here who would recognize in this or that, this is a way that I've resisted. I've held back. I've tried to protect myself. I've guarded myself. I've, I've built protections when I should push out toward those in need. Lord, would you draw us one step further, one decision of our own will more in yielding our will trustingly to you. Not my will in that thing, but Lord, your will be done. Lord, give us the strength, give us the courage by your spirit to take that next step into that and a step after that and walking hand in hand with you, rejoicing together the spirit of the Lord is upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.